0: You're listening to Latin Ways. I'm your host Sylvia Richardson and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Robert Jensen. He's a professor emeritus in the School of Journalism and Media at the University of Texas, Austin. His latest book, well he's got many books, but his latest book Confronting Harsh Ecological Realities is coming up very soon and we're delighted to have him on our show. Thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thank you, Sylvia. I I must say, though, I'm disappointed. We've been talking for how many years and you still introduce me as doctor. I can't get you to stop using that (laughs) silly doctor (laughs) preface there. You know, I I keep reminding you I can't prescribe drugs to anybody. So Mm -hmm. what, what good is it? What good is it to be a doctor if you can't write a prescription?
0: Well, I think there are many ways that we heal the world and perhaps we can talk about how healing okay. means wholeness for me instead of just prescriptions. All
1: right. You got me on that one. Go. Okay.
0: Um, you know, it, it's interesting you say that because um when I think about uh education and what the promise of education is this sort of liberating yeah. liberating place where where people come and they get their degree and suddenly they'll be free from poverty free from having odious jobs and they'll be able to have a, a beautiful life and so when we live in a society that has cyclical crisis, that is constantly in crisis, we're constantly being told we have an economic crisis, there is inflation, and unemployment rates are unlike any other years, and we're, we have this promise that it's only cyclical, and capitalism will recover, and we'll get over it. And in many ways, I feel that education has really let us down in that we have been led to believe that some of these things are just natural you know they're just natural evolutions of development and so i I guess i want to begin the conversation by thinking about the development of democratic thinking you know how we we often Mm -hmm. you know uh praise the athenian democracy but we never think about how slaves and women were never mentioned, you know, in the Athenian democracy. And what would their idea of democracy have been from their point of view? And likewise we never think of our children's idea of what democratic rule looks like when we're investing most of our money in bombs and not thinking about creating sustainable ways of being. So how do we not only uh, address some of the fallacies that are Im- implicit in the idea of development as a natural process and the root causes of injustice and inequality which in many ways you could go back to capitalism and colonization but you can go as far as you like
1: well I think in one question Sylvia you've asked me to explain the world and why it's in such tough shape and I want to remind people, I'm a simple boy from the prairie. I grew up in North Dakota, and that question is well beyond my intellectual capacity. But I, I can't take it all on, but there are some really important points that, that you just raised. So let me let me speak to what I think I can say. Um, I spent 26 years teaching at the University of Texas at Austin, which was a very fine school, but it was hard not to see the contradictions in education. On the one hand, um, in the In my lifetime, I was born in nineteen fifty eight higher education was uh, significantly democratized. That is people who, when I was born, wouldn't have gone to college are now able to go to college, and that's a good thing. At the same time, there was a kind of anti-democratic trend in the universities to make uh, real critical thinking less likely and to turn higher education into a, a kind of you know glorified vocational training. And so you can see that there are both democratic and anti-democratic traditions in that period. Um, That's not surprising. Life is often contradictory and confusing like that. But what that means is that a lot of kids go to college now knowing full well that their lifetime earnings are likely to be considerably higher with a college degree than without one. Well, you can understand why from a self-interested perspective people want that, but it doesn't lend itself to the kind of critical thinking uh, in the university that we need for all the reasons you pointed out about historic injustices continuing problems ecological crises now i'm not saying there's no critical thinking that goes on in the university i mean i spent 26 years trying to teach students how to think critically in the deepest possible way so there's lots of great teaching going on but we're talking about the nature of the institution And that's where we sit, Um, you know, two steps forward, one step back, one step to the side, who can, you know, know where it's really going. But of course, if we were to have a serious higher education system, all of the points you made would be standard part of the curriculum. In fact, they'd be a standard part of the curriculum, not only in college and university, but in high school and junior high and, you know, in ways that are appropriate, even down to elementary school. So, there have been advances in that. The curriculum is far more, I think, um, progressive today in most places than it was, you know, back when I was born. But there's a lot of work to do. And, you know, when you talk about cycles, that's a that's a good a good point. So there are psych, business cycles in capitalism: boom and bust, up and down, recession, growth. And it's a very good thing to understand business cycles, but you're pointing out there's a larger cycle, which is capitalism is a wealth concentrator. And so that's part of the cycle as well. And of course, there's even larger cycles for systems. And if you want to step back to look at the human being as an organism, there are cycles for organisms. Most organisms eventually go extinct. Well, we should all be thinking at all those levels. Uh, But sadly, as you point out, too often we're focused only on... uh, a very narrow conception of what it means to think critically.
0: So we'll come closer to Earth then, um, and I I wonder if we can talk a little bit about the way that relationships, in in many ways, you know, from an indigenous perspective, uh, there's a spiritual component to being a living being, and there is also a physical component, right? Your hmm. relationships with your family, your groups, your work, all. You know, all of those people play a role. Your relationship spiritually for me, is your connection to the land, your connection to other sentient beings, your connection to an idea of spirit, whatever that defines for you. And we don't often take those things into consideration. We now are talking about the twenty sixth, you know conference on how to save the environment, how to say you know, how to end climate change. And yet, we're not talking about the root causes that have led us to this point. So how do we wrap up with that? Because there is a a collective, systemic um, process that has taken place, and there is an individual component that usually it's the only one that gets addressed. It's like people should just move to driving electric cars.
1: Yeah, that's a, a very important point. So let's talk about that that simplest level, the individual level. Uh, Should each of us, in ways that are possible within our own lives, realizing that not everybody lives with the same advantages, should we try to scale down our consumption of energy and other materials that are extracted from the earth? Sure we should. Um, That just makes sense. Everybody should, not only because it's a moral obligation to future generations, because, of course, if we keep extracting at the level we are, the options for future generations will be severely limited All right now is that enough well most of us would say no that's not enough we have to look at the way systems operate and systems have to be changed through collective action which is what we mean by politics so what has to change in a capitalist economy what has to change at you know the level of nation states with hundreds of millions of people in them like the united states well that's an important uh... level of analysis as well so in addition to reducing my own personal consumption i have an obligation to participate in political action but there i think there's also another level that we have to come to terms with which is human beings uh, after all are organisms as we already pointed out and one thing organisms do is go after energy and one of the unfortunate things about our big brains I mean, there's a lot of great things about the 1350 cubic centimeter human brain you know we can converse even though we live in different parts of the world that's a, a great aspect of the human big brain but of course the human big brain has also done all sorts of things that are ecologically destructive and if you look at you know history and, and, and a global perspective, humans tend to extract as much energy out of the ecosystem as their technology allows and when you have advanced scientific technology like we do today, that spells trouble. And so it's not just individuals are sometimes bad, although we all are sometimes bad. It's not just that certain systems are bad, although I think they are, like capitalism. It's also that we're dealing with this human natural tendency to maximize the energy we can extract from ecosystems. And so we have to deal with that, too. All of those levels are important. If I said, listen, my personal consumption doesn't matter, you would be within your rights to say, well, that's kind of weaseling out of your responsibility. And if I said, well, my political obligations don't matter, you'd be right to say the same thing. And I also think we need to think at this level of the human. Now, of course, some energy consumption is just grotesque and wasteful. You know, if you if you uh, point to a billionaire who's sailing around on a yacht and partying with his or her friends. Yeah, that's just wasteful and grotesque. But there's a lot of hu- uh, uses of energy by humans that just make our life more comfortable, um, you know, allow us to heat our homes efficiently and all sorts of things. But even some of those very understandable uses of energy are not going to be possible in the future. So we have a lot of hard decisions to make that have to be made collectively but now we're back to your point. We don't really have a political system that's set up to make those collective decisions in a way that is both you know, rational and also um, just, consistent with our own moral principles. So as is often the case, Sylvia, the longer we talk, the more I remember how hard the task in front mm. of us is.
0: You know, it was interesting. I was talking to um, Dr. Robin Hanel, um, Harvard-educated economist who is very committed to creating a participatory idea of economics, you know, from the bottom up. And one of the things that I asked was, you know, what's going to take for us to collectively wake up, right, because it it requires that willingness to not turn away, you know, that willful blindness. I didn't know. Here in Canada, we have indigenous communities that have been genocide and displaced, and the government, um, you know, goes around the world saying, we don't have a colonial past. We don't have colonies in the world. And yet their colonial practices is really similar. You know, their their aggression towards indigenous people continues today, right? They are being displaced to make room for pipelines. There are people being arrested en masse, you know, by RCMP. And people just think, oh, well, that's the law. They're violating the law. And at what point do we justify, you know, state violence as legal, and ignore the rights of indigenous people who get displaced so they can clear cut the forest and grow burgers for, you know, McDonald's like they do in Brazil or, or here in Canada where they clear cut the forest so they can put pipelines and, you know, drill the earth for oil. And he said to me one thing, he says, well, you know, imagine what the world would look like if the religions of our time that has shaped our ideas of who we are, declare that drilling for oil and clear cutting forests and topping mountains for coal is an abomination to God. You know? What would our societies look like, right? So we have to sometimes go back. And one of the things that you raised in your book is the role of agriculture, you know, how Um, we have been told that agriculture was the foundational piece of our so-called civilization and development. And I I like to talk about how agriculture not only has deformed our relationship Mm -hmm. with the land, but also deformed who we are as people. Can you talk about how you see this relationship?
1: Again, we can focus on different parts of the problem. We can focus on the specific problem today industrial capitalism, fossil fuel-based, what are the consequences? Well, the consequences are, of course, disastrous, we all now know, to the the ecological health of the planet. Okay. Well, where did that come from? Well, we can go back and look at the roots of the Industrial Revolution and capitalism. Right? But one of the, the ways, I think, to put all this in perspective, as you just pointed out, is to ask a a question, well, when did when did all this start? When did the human experiment sort of go off the rails? Uh, When did it become uh, destructive? And a lot of people, and I think this is, although there's some debate about this among scholars, I think that the perspective you just shared is is the most compelling one, which is that human beings, with some variation, because, you know, geography matters, you know, human societies differ depending on where they arise, but in general before agriculture the human societies were largely sustainable in the way we typically mean that that they didn't compromise the ability of future generations to to function okay what changed that well uh, i think agriculture is the the sort of inflection point to look at in some ways agriculture is the beginning of climate change it's as my friend and co-author wes jackson says It's the first of the energy pools that human beings started exploiting. There's a lot of energy in the soil, there's a lot of carbon in the soil, and agriculture is a way of taking that carbon and turning it into energy for humans. And where we did that in the forms of grain, like wheat and barley, first in the Middle East, later in other parts of the world, we began the drawdown of the ecological uh, ecological capital of the planet beyond replacement levels. Right Farming in those kind of ways is inherently destructive. It also was the beginning of uh, species extinction because when we farm, we eliminate other organisms right so I 'm not saying that farming you know from ten to twelve thousand years ago was as ecolog- ecologically destructive hmm. as a modern factory burning oil, of course not, but we we can see the problem of humans extracting energy from the environment in a way that is not ecologically sustainable. And of course after the extracting the carbon of the soil in agriculture, eventually in various places the forests of the world were felled to smelt the iron and for the the iron age and the bronze age and the, the metals and eventually of course coal, oil and gas, the fossil fuels. Those are what my friend West calls the five major carbon pools that human beings have been taking. Okay, well, to people who are dealing with really extreme challenges today, that historical meandering may seem irrelevant, and I understand that. But we're trying to put into perspective a set of problems today um, that don't have easy answers, and I think we're going to do better if we understand that kind of long arc of history. All right, that's a long, you know, kind of digression, uh, but I do think it is relevant today and again uh I don't want to be you know kind of uh, naive I think when we think in these terms we realize that the problems we face are going to be harder to resolve than we might think let me give you an example gas burning engines in in automobiles are a real problem today right? and so some people want to celebrate electric vehicles as if that is going to solve the problem well it's not it's going to create different problems because electric vehicles require a whole lot of metal and other substances that are mined from the earth. Uh, The production of electric vehicles requires fossil fuels. Uh, Electric vehicles aren't the solution. They're, in fact, just a different form of the problem. And so if we want to be serious, we have to step back and and really think at this level. And not surprisingly, a lot of people don't want to do it. I don't like doing it because it's it's hard, but that's where I think we're at at this moment in history.
0: You know, one of the um, courses that I've recently um, been thinking about was how residential schools here in Canada were a form of cultural genocide, Mm -hmm. uh, presented as an invitation to civilization, right? They were so-called trying to make indigenous people white. But the question is, if that were the case, right, if, if we really were after equality and creating, um, why weren't they educated in the same way that other white children were being educated, you know, to uh, advance, right? By the time they they left uh, residential schools, which usually they were taken from their homes when they were little babies, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, five and six years old, and then they would come out at 18 with less than level 5 grade education. And so to me, um, the the injustice in it is very evident. They were forced Mm -hmm. to do labor. And likewise, I think we are often being offered in society solutions Mm -hmm. that not only exacerbate the problem, you know, we know the lithium Mm -hmm. is a a mineral that needs to be mined, and uh, there are indigenous people in Bolivia who were you know, removes who were, you know, there was a military coup that tried to force the first indigenous president out so they could continue to expand their mining operation in that country when the country said, no, nature has rights. So to me, most people understand racism as the root of a lot of the injustice we have. But I would argue that Capitalism and colonization came hand in hand. You know, you had empires Mm -hmm. who had deplo, you know, I I guess exploited their own lands, and so they went outside to rob from other places. Um, Can we talk a little bit about the the connection between our socioeconomic systems and the kind of ecological degradation that we are facing today?
1: Yeah, I I think you're right. In some sense, um, civilization is a synonym for hierarchy so you know when i was a kid growing up in the 1960s we were all taught civilization was a good thing you know and there was a kind of as you pointed out a sort of march to civilization well that story has largely broken down unless you're in the republican party in the united states in which case it's still the story you're telling we we now know that that civilization came Uh, With trade-offs, yeah, we got writing and we got modern science and things that many of us like, uh, but it did come at the cost of the brutality with which hierarchy is enforced. You mentioned one of those particularly egregious, um, almost obscene hierarchies, which was the European conquest of the so-called New World and the consequences for the indigenous people. Uh, I often point out that that is, in fact, the most extensive genocide in recorded human history Uh, in the United States, in the continental United States, which I know best, somewhere between 95 and 99% of the indigenous people were exterminated by the turn of the 20th century. Well, that's a genocide. Now, there are lots of other genocides in human history, and I'm not just talking about the Nazi Holocaust. You can go back. This hierarchy that emerges in civilization has produced genocide pretty routinely. In fact, if you go back to the Hebrew Bible, what uh, we who grew up in Christianity learned to call the Old Testament, I mean, there's stories of genocide, you know, by a wrathful God throughout that. So it's not as if genocide is anything new. I think the, the moral question is for a society like the United States that claims to have been birthed out of an instinct for liberty, how do you square that with the genocide? How do you square that with the hierarchy that was necessary to both acquire the land for the United States and then build its economy? Well, you know, we we were talking about uh, colleges and universities when we started. You know, the beginning of the 20th century, nobody would have dared point this out. And now it's not uncommon for people in college and university courses to learn about this. That's progress. Uh, But there's, pushback, there's backlash. And I think the strength of a, a nativist, overtly racist Republican party in the United States, not the only place where that's happening, obviously, Canada, Europe, uh, lots of these reactionary forces are gathering steam. But it shows how hard it is to dislodge the the myth, the the origin myth of mm-hmm. places like the United States. So we have to do that. We have to keep pushing And at the same time, I think we have to recognize that there is no easy solution to the ecological crisis. So on the one hand, we're dealing with a cultural, political, economic problem, you know, in which within the human family, there is not enough justice. And on the other hand, we're dealing with the ecological crises, where the relationship with the human family globally is dramatically out of sync with the ecosystems of the world. And that last problem, the eco problem is not going to be solved simply by creating more just economies, because we are now in a position you know with nearly eight billion people on the planet and ecosystems degraded in some places beyond recovery in at least in human time frames. Uh, we're dealing with a whole bunch of challenges that nobody has an answer for, and I think the first step to meaningful policy that can address it is to recognize We're in a pretty deep hole, and it has all of the components you're mentioning, cultural, religious, social, and and as well as political and economic.
0: Now, your book, An Inconvenient Apocalypse, (laughs) Confronting (laughs) Harsh Ecological Realities. In many ways, I think one of the um, aspects of this apocalyptic um, stage that we've reached is that we have lost... A sense of who we are you know as you point out we are we are sentient beings but we're also animals like you know and we have a a particular human nature to pursue uh energy so how do Mm -hmm. we not only take that you know the way our appetites have driven us to separate from our mother you know the earth literally is what gives everything life um to create this this aberration, you know, in our yeah. relationship with how we see the land, how we see ourselves, how we see the air, how we pollute the rivers, without regard.
1: Yeah, again, you're pointing to these kind of dual challenges we face. On the one hand, if we want to be the people we claim to be, like I, I think of myself as a moral person, as a as a good person. Well, if I want to be that person, then I have to commit to some pretty serious changes within the human family to make sure that the distribution of wealth and power is more equitable. If I don't do that, I'm not really the person I claim to be, okay? At the same time, we've got this, you know, what what my friend Jim Copland used to call multiple cascading ecological crises, not just climate change. Climate change is perhaps the most compelling at the moment, but also, you know, soil erosion, uh, chemical contamination of land and water, which is a more recent problem of the 20th century. And of course, the, the dramatic reduction in biodiversity, all of those um, kind of sum up these multiple cascading crises. And to address those, first of all, we're all going to have to learn to live with less and not just less in the sense that, you know, uh, I'll I'll scale back and have a hybrid car instead of, you know, a gas car. Or, you know, I, I, I won't go on that Mediterranean cruise I was planning. <laughs> that was kind of a joke. I've never planned to go on a Mediterranean cruise. Uh, those are kind of the low-hanging fruit, but we're talking about serious reductions in energy and material consumption if there is going to be a human future. Uh, well, we have to do both of those things at the same time.
0: I just want to say thank you so much for all the work that you do and for this beautiful book that not only challenges to see the limits of our knowledge, but to really be open to what we don't know.
1: Yeah, Well, Sylvia, um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, there's a new pleasure now because since we last talked, I've moved and the community I now live in, the community radio station there carries latin waves so i get to hear you on my radio not just having to go online it's never as much fun to go online so uh there's a little thing to celebrate in my life i i get to uh i get to hear you on the radio where i live so keep up the good work please
0: thank you so much i appreciate that look forward to speaking to you again take care thanks Thank you for listening to Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an independently produced syndicated radio program made available for free to campus and community radios and also to the world at latinwavesmedia.com. Please visit the website to hear previous shows, hear about upcoming events, and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month.